We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome everybody, Steve with Sense coming at you once again with part two of our communist uh, series, I guess you would want to say, with Michael Graney. I say that right, right? Yes, you did. Yes! <laughs> I don't have too much trouble with your name, Corningham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got priest friends. One calls me pork, uh, pork and ham, cut, cutting the ham, all kinds of nuts, all oh, kinds oh, of nutty very, things. Very anyway, witty. I said very witty of them. Yes, yes, it's it's. I'm easy. I'm an easy target. <laughs> anyway, so we're going. To, we stopped last time at Pius the Ninth, and now we're on the road to Rerum Navarum, right? Yes. All right, take it away. Okay, uh, as you said, we we stopped last time with the, with the death of Pius the Ninth, and at that time, he seemed he had been framed as a reactionary and everything else, which he was not. And the, both the radicals and the true reactionaries thought they had an open field now. We finally got this guy out of the way. Longest pontificate in history. Uh, so they started fighting. The radicals wanted to uh, change completely or even abolish the church, make it a de facto abolition. The moderate radicals, all they wanted was to devolve the church into various national churches along the model of the, the Church of England, mm -hmm. which, of course, would have meant that they'd all go their own way and you wouldn't have a Catholic church anymore. Unless, of course, you call it the Roman Catholic Church, a term, by the way, which I object to because, properly speaking, Roman Catholic Church refers to the Church of the Diocese of Rome. That whole, the label Roman Catholic comes from branch theory, which if you're familiar with the Oxford movement, the whole idea of the Oxford movement, the first one, the semi-Orthodox one, was that there is an invisible church. And the Catholic church is divided into three branches. There's the Anglo-Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church, and the Orthodox autocephalous Catholic churches. Unfortunately, both the Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church reject branch theory. So basically only a tiny percentage of Anglo-Catholics, as they call themselves, accept this invisible church theory. So the, the label Roman Catholic Church came in at, around that time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just the Catholic Church. So much for that speech. <laughs> but to return, the... The radicals wanted basically to change the Catholic Church, update it to modern conditions, which meant, you know, devolving it, turning it into a bunch of national churches, which would go the way of the Church of England and eventually become only quasi-Christian. The reactionaries, for their part, wanted to return the Catholic Church to a mythical medieval period that never actually existed. If you have ever read church history from the time that the church was instituted on Holy Thursday down to the end of the Middle Ages, whenever you want to put that, say, call it the Reformation, you'd say, this is a unified church? I mean, you would not believe what was going on. I mean, there were divisions everywhere. Uh, the fact that the Catholic Church has managed to stay a unified body for 2,000 years argues more in favor of its divine institution than any teaching. <laughs> what was it that uh, Hilaire Belloc is alleged to have said that the divine institution of the church is proven by the fact that no other institution than a divine one could have survived such knavish imbecility. <laughs> yeah. Now, unfortunately, we can't prove that he said that, and it's in a biography of Belloc that was written by a rather scurrilous fellow, but we won't get into that. 
But it's one of those things like St. Nicholas of Myra allegedly punching Bishop Arius in the mouth mm -hmm. that, okay, it probably never happened, but you wish it had. <laughs> okay. Now, you had so many factions among the cardinals during you know the 1878 conclave, nobody could come to a decision. So they looked around and said, what we need to do is buy time so that the factions can come up with a viable candidate and then gather enough uh, votes to get their candidate in. Because even the reactionaries and the radicals couldn't agree among themselves. So they looked around and found this semi-obscure Cardinal Pecci who was Archbishop Bishop of Perugia. You know, a small town, rather unimportant diocese. Uh, and the reason that Cardinal Pecci was ideal as a stopgap candidate to buy time was he was 65 years old, very poor health. He only expected himself to live for a couple of weeks. He was very ill. And uh, so they elected him, figuring that within a month or so, they'll be back in conclave, this time with more political power. Well, it turned out that uh, Cardinal Pecci got better, much to his own surprise. And he had the second longest pontificate to date, right after the longest pontificate in history. And it also turned out that despite his presumed qualifications as an ailing pope who would die very shortly, he turned out to be the perfect candidate on substantive grounds. He was the last pope ever to have experience as a civil governor. You know, genuine political power. He had served as, uh, you know, the civil governor, the papal governor of, uh, what was the place? Benevento from 1838 to 1841. Then he was, he, he cleaned that up. It was a, it was in the, it was a small principality completely surrounded by the kingdom of Naples and Sicily. And it was a refuge for bandits and convicts, anybody who wanted to take refuge, because it was so poorly governed up to the time that Cardinal Pecci took over, that within a few months, he cleaned the place up and did it without too much violence. He actually had to lead an army at one point, a very small army, but he cleaned out the bandits which were making life a living hell for the, you know, for the ordinary people. And then he was in Perugia from 1841 to 1843, when Gregory XVI, impressed with his talent, appointed him nuncio to the kingdom of Belgium, which had just been formed. You know, the Belgium was split off from France, and they uh, finally formed an independent kingdom. It used to be part of France and the Netherlands, so they joined these two sections together following the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, turned out that the king of Belgium thought that he should have more power over Catholic education than he really should. And Cardinal Pecci decided, he was actually a cardinal later, but uh, Pecci decided that this government interference in Catholic education could not be tolerated and made him uh, basically read the riot act to the legislature and to the king and made himself very unpopular. Well, Gregory XVI couldn't exactly demote him because he agreed with Pecci, but he couldn't keep him in a kingdom where his whole job was to act as a friendly liaison with the local government. So he was he had been made an archbishop to become nuncio, but then he was transferred to a bishopric. But they couldn't call him a bishop because that would be a demotion, and he was not being demoted or reprimanded or even disciplined. So they created a new title for him. He was to be Archbishop Bishop of Perugia. Uh, and there he stayed for the next, uh, what was it? From 1843, oh, excuse me, 1846 to uh, 1878. And Pius IX, who was elected in 1846, thought very highly of him, but his Secretary of State, whose name I can't remember at the moment, did not. He thought he was too controversial. So even though he and Pius IX thought alike on many things and was consulted on many things, which is why he was created a cardinal. I mean, the the archbishop bishop of this nothing little diocese, where he carried out an incredible number of reforms. I'm, I'm starting to get into a lecture on Leo the Thirteenth, <laughs> but 
Leo the Thirteenth truly was a phenomenal person, and much underappreciated at the time. In fact, well, we won't get into that. We have no <laughs> commercial said, break, it, so <laughs> it, it, it is so easy to to talk so much about Leo the Thirteenth. He was the only pope in the nineteenth century who received a commendation from the floor of Congress from a Protestant senator who said he was the greatest pope since I can't remember the name of the pope he said was great, which is really unusual for, for a Protestant at all to say that. Especially those now, days. Yeah. Uh, oh, what is, what is unusual about Perugia is that it was the site during the Middle Ages of the Perugia Declaration that was basically socialism. And Leo XIII turned the whole place around. He had a unique pastoral style, which is actually important for his role as pope. He wouldn't condemn people. What he would do would bring people who were problems in, usually seminarians, sit down and talk to them and get them to realize what the problem was and then work with them on a way to correct the situation. And then, because he would never accuse someone flat out of anything. And... So, right after uh, what he, his first, almost his first act as Pope was to issue an encyclical outlining the problems of the world, which were all, if you read the encyclical and know and saw, of course, our first episode, you'd realize what the problem was. So he called it Inscrutabile Dei Concilio, the evils affecting modern society, basically the new things. Uh, his next encyclical, was quad, uh, quote, excuse me, quote apostolici muneris on socialism, communism, and nihilism. Uh, the differences between socialism and communism, as we learned in our last episode, are basically semantic. We can call it socialism or communism, whichever you want, and still mean the same thing. Uh, nihilism is basically the belief which comes from, you know, moral relativism that pretty much nothing means anything. And this is the natural result, as Heinrich Roman later pointed out in his book on the natural law. It's the obvious end of, you know, shifting from the intellect to the will as the basis of the natural law. In other words, if you don't use your human reason, you're going to use your faith. And if you don't base your faith on reason, you're going to end up believing anything you want, which means that belief is worthless. And mm-hmm. um, so then... He issued a third encyclical, Eterni Patris, on the restoration of Christian philosophy, specifically that of Thomas Aquinas. Now, the sequence of these things is important because first he started out with the, you know, the problems of modern society in general, then the most serious problems, then the remedy in general. And he was so effective in his presentation that many people credit the you know, the, the Thomist revival, you know, the revival of Thomist of Aquinas' philosophy to Leo Thirteenth instead of Gregory Sixteenth. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, so, you know, and, and then after that, it was followed by a number of other encyclicals, which we could list, but it would take up too much time and wouldn't do, and it, it really not germane to the story here, except for the fact that nobody was listening to them. I mean, basically, they were following the pattern set by Gregory the Sixteenth, who was the first one to issue regular encyclicals, that you point out what's wrong and condemn it. You don't really give any prescription for how to correct the, 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 the problem, except don't do that. Well, what the socialists were saying was, oh, do this, 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 and this, and you'll establish the kingdom of God on earth. Between a positive program like that and a negative program that the you know the Catholic Church was promoting, guess what people are going to listen to if they're not thinking too clearly? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it was becoming clear that something different was needed, but what? Well, then came the New York City mayoral campaign of 1886. And you're going to say to yourself, New York City? What on earth has the mayoral campaign of 1886 got to do with the Catholic Church? You don't say New York City, you say New York City! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, of course, 
unless you're from New York City, in which case you believe that the universe revolves around the city. Mm -hmm. I was once talking to someone who kept talking about the city, the city. I said, do you mean New York? Of course. <laughs> I said, oh, well, when you say the city and I'm talking to a Catholic, I tend to think of either Jerusalem or Rome, depending on the context, but, uh, or maybe Antioch, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she straightened me out, don't worry. But, uh, <laughs> So you're thinking, well, the mayoral campaign of new of 1886. Well, think about the time. Boss Tweed had finally gone down, one of the most corrupt politicians in New York history. Corrupt but effective. Uh, and so you had, you know, uh, even Tammany Hall was saying we we need reform. So you basically had three major reform candidates pop up. Uh, you had quite a few minor ones that whose names I don't remember, but the big ones were Abram Stevens Hewitt. He was an established politician, and strangely enough for a Democratic politician of that day and age, he was honest, believe it or not. He had served in Congress, uh, and uh, then you had the Republican candidate. And as a compliment, he was called the cowboy candidate because he had just returned from the West where he was ranching. In those days, being a cowboy was not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. This was a fellow you may have heard of, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Uh, fairly young man, and the Republican bosses convinced him to run, given the promise that they would not betray him. In other words, they would not tell the Republican voters to vote for Hewitt because you had a third party running, the, the labor, United Labor Party, the agrarian socialist Henry George. And he was promising the moon and the stars. His program, uh, well, first, Henry George was at that time gaining a certain amount of international notoriety. In 1879, he had published a book, Progress and Poverty, which became one of the two best-selling socialist books published in the United States in the 19th century. The other was one you may have been forced to read in high school, Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. It was published in 1888. But Progress and Poverty, which for some reason doesn't appear too many, in too many schools nowadays, was much bigger and much more popular, mainly because Henry George was a much better self-promoter than Edward Bellamy ever was. Now, <clears throat> uh, what agrarian socialism means is that the state takes over de facto ownership of all land and natural resources. Because Henry George was a, he was self-educated. He had quit the Episcopalian school in, I may have been Philadelphia, I, I don't remember. Uh, since I don't really care about Henry George too much, except what he did. Uh, and like all autodidacts, he had a number of flaws, but they were all, he also had none of the virtues of being self-educated. He had an incredible ego. He was right, everybody else was wrong. No question about that. Mm -hmm. At first he thought that the economic problems he observed, he observed were due to the business cycle. Now, I wrote a journal article on the business cycle and actually published it in a Georgist journal, but no need to get into that. This is not a course in economics very much. <laughs> if, you ever have, if you have any questions during this presentation, do not hesitate to ask because this is starting to get, now it starts to get weird. Er. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, he finally decided, however, that it was private ownership of land that was causing economic problems because he saw fewer economic problems in, say, when he moved to California, where land ownership was not concentrated than he saw in New York City, where land ownership was concentrated. Now, of course, he was completely missing the problems associated with the financial system, the uh, advancing technology competing with human labor, and a number of other factors. To him, it must be that land is privately owned that is causing all these problems. And I won't get into the, the, uh, the flaws that several people saw in his scheme, but basically what he advocated was something called the single tax. 
the single tax would mean abolishing all taxes except for taking all profits from land as the only tax, which of course would make the state the the sole official the, the actual owner of all land because one of the definitions of ownership is enjoyment of the fruits. If you don't enjoy the fruits, then well, then you're not the owner, really. Uh, so that by taking all profits from land use or from land itself as the sole tax, poverty would be abolished, industry would flourish, unemployment would disappear. And the the underlying theme was that if the state owned all land, it would life would be perfect. In fact, he's this is a quote from Progress and Poverty. In this way, the state may become the universal landlord without calling herself so and without assuming a single new function. And this follows an incredible list of all the benefits that would result if the state owned everything in the way of land. And at first, Karl Marx uh, approved of it since, you know, abolition of private property and land is, I believe, number one on his list of 10 measures to destroy private property in the Communist Manifesto, which actually he may not have written the whole thing. It may have been Engels thought more than Marx's, but that's another issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so that this was his platform as mayor of New York. Well, stop to think about it. What on earth can the mayor of New York do to create to to abolish all other taxes and abolish private property and land nothing not even the mayor of new york can do that the greatest city on earth the center of the universe he might also he might have had to do something with the city council even to get it through uh and of course he didn't control he wouldn't have controlled the city council even if he had been elected uh now this the, the problem of Henry George running for mayor of New York was exacerbated by the fact that he had joined with a renegade priest by the name of Father Edward McGlynn. Edward McGlynn is revered today in liberal Catholic circles and even in some conservative Catholic circles because he embodied authentic Catholic teaching according to Henry George. He was a socialist. And he was something of a loose cannon, and you can spell that C-A-N-O-N. Uh, and his career is, is, is at least as interesting as Henry George's, but we won't get into it. <laughs> he was uh, one of the first uh, temporary rectors of the American College in Rome, and he used his position there to bully the other students, uh, one of which later became his own archbishop. And to do... Archbishop Michael Corrigan justice, he did not take revenge on McGlynn, even though McGlynn was usually terrified that he would, and was always insulting Corrigan, making speeches against him, doing everything he possibly could. And Corrigan, maybe he wasn't the greatest Archbishop of New York, but at least he seemed like a decent man. Uh, fortunately for McGlynn, and unfortunately for the church, because if uh, McGlynn had been managed to be slapped down. A lot of problems that we see in the church today probably, in my opinion, would not have, have, a, have happened. Uh, McGlynn was an, a firm adherent of the new things. He was a modernist. He was a socialist. There is, however, no evidence that he was into esotericism or spiritualism. At least he had that. Uh, with his friend, Father Richard Layler Burtzel, he was in favor of women's ordination, of uh, English in the liturgy. He associated with known anti-Catholics like Henry Ward Beecher. He was, according to the anti-Catholic media, the ideal Catholic priest because he put Americanism ahead of being a Catholic. Mm -hmm. Now, as would be pointed out about 30 years later, there is a legitimate form of Americanism that the church has no problem with. Then there's McGlynn's type of Americanism, which the church has some serious problems with. Uh, and with, with his friend Birchall, he tried to set up an independent parish and basically establish uh, his own independent American Catholic Church. But he couldn't find anybody with enough money who would give it to him to, to do this, carry out the project. So he finally knuckled under and, uh, you know, 
became a priest in the Archdiocese of New York, where he didn't seem to be able to get along with anybody. He, I forget when he when, when he was uh, right after the Civil War when he was uh, lost his post as a chaplain in the hospital that was in Central Park. I think he went through like about half a dozen assignments in the space of twelve or eighteen months. He couldn't get along with anybody, and then he went AWOL to Europe without permission. Then he, where he imbibed more socialist ideas, came back, and finally he got himself in charge of a parish, one of the largest in the city. Uh, but he instantly came into conflict with uh, Cardinal McCluskey, who was Archbishop of New York at the time. And McCluskey kept asking him, stop making socialist speeches. And each time McGlynn promised he would do it, and then very shortly after would break his word. McGlynn's word became a synonym for, you know, lack of being, for liar, basically. Unless, of course, you were a supporter of Henry George and Father McGlynn, in which case uh, you could trust everything they said, absolutely. Uh, well, when McGlynn and George got together, because McGlynn, at one point in New York, when Henry George was in Ireland, messing things up over there, and Michael Dabbitt, who was the president and founder of the National Land League, had he was an on-again, off-again Georgist. George would tick him off by, by pulling some stunt, and Davitt would leave him for a while because Parnell, Charles Stuart Parnell, you may have heard of him, and William O'Brien, whom you probably didn't hear of, who was editor of the United Irishman, which is the official journal of the Irish National Land League. Two-thirds, they were, the, you know, the three of them were the leadership of the league. Parnell and William O'Brien were firmly in favor of small ownership, you know, wide, you know, ownership of the land, which is the one thing the Irish had been prevented from doing for centuries. Uh, David was on again, off again. Every time Henry George got a hold of him, he'd be persuaded for a while that land ownership should be nationalized by the state. Uh, and then he, Parnell and O'Brien would work on him and he'd come back to being, you know, in favor of peasant proprietorship as they called it. Well, at one point, a, a priest in New York made a speech against Henry George, and McGlynn popped up and started cussing him out and made a speech in favor of Henry George. Mm -hmm. George heard of this right after David had, you know, uh, gone off on his own, gone back to Parnell and O'Brien for a while. I told you this was complicated. <laughs> and then uh, they met when George returned to New York, and George referred to McGlynn, each one referred to the other one as a prophet of the new Christianity, and George declared that McGlynn was the apostle of the new Christianity, of the new gospel of a transformed Christianity. Bold. Which, you know, <laughs> which, from the beginning, socialism had as its goal the establishment of the new Christianity, the democratic religion of socialism. Uh, and so George thought that McGlynn was the, the prophet of God come to lead, you know, Americans to the promised land of agrarian socialism. Uh, during the campaign, Corrigan ordered McGlynn privately so as not to cause a scandal and, you know, unfairly influence the election, ordered McGlynn to stop making speeches. For once, McGlynn obeyed. But of course, he kept appearing with George on the platform and at rallies and everything else, not saying anything. He wasn't making a speech. He was keeping to the letter of the law. But it gave a clear indication that McGlynn was endorsing Henry George, which was what Corrigan had asked him not to do. Technically, he wasn't. But as far as everyone else was concerned, he was. Uh, Terence Powderly of the Knights of Labor, who actually did come out in support of Henry George, uh, later tried to explain that he had done this only as a private person, not as a representative of the Knights of Labor, and of course nobody believed him. Uh, now, George, during the election, <laughs> he claimed the endorsement of Bishop Thomas Nulty of Meath. Meath is a, is a county in the, in the middle of Ireland. Uh, and he also claimed the endorsement of Cardinal Edward Manning. Well, 
years before Tom, a few years before Bishop Nolte had repudiated any connection with George at all. He had actually written a, a bishop's pastoral endorsing George's program, but then George inserted some things into the newspapers that implied that Nolte had said something that Nolte had not said without consulting Nolte. Nolte was furious and put notices in the papers repudiating any and all connection with Henry George and anything that he had ever said supporting George. He even repudiated effectively his own pastoral by saying that he didn't say what it sounded like it said, which was kind of equivocal. But then he later assured Leo XIII that he had been completely misunderstood, that he totally supported Leo XIII and traditional Catholic teaching on private property. So George claiming Nolte's endorsement was a little bit dishonest. Even though, although to do George credit, he honestly believed that what he was saying was the truth. It just didn't coincide with facts. I mean, of course, to be a good liar, you actually have to believe your own lies. Uh, the Cardinal Manning thing was a bit more equivocal and a bit more damaging to George. Because when Manning heard that George was claiming his, Manning's, endorsement, he sent an open letter to the New York newspapers, disclaiming any such thing. Well, it was phrased in such diplomatic language that George took this as yet another endorsement. Manning heard about it and got upset, and still diplomatically and politely called George a liar in a second open letter to the New York newspapers. <laughs> and of course, in George's biography written by his son, Henry George Jr., all it says is that Manning endorsed George. It never mentions these letters. And yet, direct quote, Cardinal Manning said in the newspapers, Mr. George had said the Catholic Church had never confirmed the principle of property in land. This is not true. Exactly the reverse is the fact. The church has, from the beginning, taught the right of property in land. This was published in the newspapers December 14, 1886. So Henry George's biography is wrong. All the Georges today who claim that Cardinal Manning endorsed Henry George failed to read the newspapers. Of course, they weren't alive in 1886, but it's on file at the Library of Congress if you want to look it up. I did. Now... Also during the election, Tammany Hall asked, you know, the archdiocese to issue a statement on Henry George because they were losing a lot of voters. Tammany Hall was for once trying to honestly reform the government in New York. And this was probably the first election and maybe even the only election in 19th century in New York City that the gangs didn't control. I mean, if you wanted to get elected in New York City, you had to go to the gangs and they'd call out the vote. They'd call out their shoulder strikers and ward healers and vote early and often as instructed. And in return, they were granted favors. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the fire companies in New York were run by the gangs. Now, again, to try to do them justice, it was also the fire companies in New York who raised a lot of the regiments for the Civil War. So they weren't just uh, big mouths. They actually put, they put it on the line. You could count on the gangs if you didn't mind getting knocked over the head or robbed or murdered. I mean, uh, just stay on their good side. Uh, and I, I should also mention, uh, you know, Boss Tweed, he was a crook, but he was an honest crook. He, although, you know, over several protests, he made certain that he divvied up the spoils equitably. When people complained that religious institutions were getting a share of the public money because they were carrying out a lot of the social services as, such as they existed in New York, he basically told them to go to you know where. Uh, so that the public high school, you know, the public schools and hospitals got their share the Catholic institutions did, the Protestant ones, and the Jewish ones did. Boss Tweed made certain they got their money. And also that he got their votes. <laughs> Until, of course, they couldn't take it anymore. He stole an estimated $25 million. But he gave value for money. 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, Tammany was trying to, you know, to, 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 you know, reform things. And so they asked the art, but they also didn't want Henry George elected. So they asked the archdiocese for opinion. Well, Corrigan wasn't going to give an official opinion because he thought that would be unfair. You know, the, the church had no business interfering in politics in that way. It would say, but it did have every duty to instruct Catholics as to what was moral, which the uh, apostolic pronotary, uh, pro Tom, Father Thomas Preston, prepared an analysis of George's uh, thought and published it, basically condemning it without condemning it. So, however, to this day, because Corrigan did not issue an official declaration of condemnation, the Georges still insist that the Catholic Church has never condemned Georgism. Well, it did unofficially. And ironically, you know, modern historians, despite the complaints of Henry George and Father McGlynn following the election, said the letter actually had no influence on the outcome of the election at all. It was, you know, the way most Catholics vote today anyway, they say they vote for whoever they want, and to heck with what the Catholic Church is saying. Don't vote for a pro-abortion candidate. Well, yeah, I guess I will anyway, because I'll get welfare, mm -hmm. maybe, if we don't shut down the economy, maybe. I mean, well, then Roosevelt, who actually had a good chance of being elected, uh, he got stabbed in the back by the Republican bosses who had promised not to tell the Republican voters to vote for Hewitt. The day before the election, they did so. They threw the election to Hewitt because they were so afraid that George would get elected. Well, in the returns, it was clear that George, he put up a good fight, got a good number of votes, but Roosevelt would have won if the Republican bosses had not told the Republicans to vote. Roosevelt never forgot that. And in the re when Taft was up for re-election in, was it, 1912, he had already decided that because he had been denied the Republican nomination, he accepted the nomination of the Progressive Party. Uh, progressive meant something different at that point. <laughs> it was basically the, uh, the reforming Republicans who formed the Progressive Party and the more conservative Democrats. Uh, but the only reason Taft ran was to prevent Roosevelt from being elected. So the Republican bosses stabbed Roosevelt in the back twice. Uh, <clears throat> and there's more about Roosevelt, but we'll meet him in a future episode. <laughs> As I told you, this is so complicated. And you can see why people who simplify and, you know, just sort of gloss over their you know, their own history, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, or nothing, uh, they think that what the, that this stuff is authentic Catholic doctrine. It is not. I mean, th these were knockdown, drag out fights at the time. It's just that the people with the biggest mouths and the biggest lies won. Well, for a time anyway. I mean, if you believe, as I do, that the Catholic Church was divinely established, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the three of us who remain. I mean, <laughs> uh, now, of course, Hewitt won because he got the Republican vote. And George and McGlynn, of course, immediately blamed the Catholic Church for their defeat. And George was asked the day after the election, well, now what are you going to do? He said, well, I shall buy a box of pens and return to being a journalist. Well, what he did was establish a newspaper, but I'll get to that in a moment. They, they also, McGlynn and George also started uh, accusing, the, the, you know, they, they made allegations of voter fraud. You know, the only way George lost because he was so popular was because there was widespread voter fraud. Well, not according to Horace Greeley or any of the modern, you know, analysts and historians. Horace Greeley, who was a socialist, by the way, and actually supported George, said it was the cleanest campaign in New York City history. Hmm. Said, 
the, the polls were scrupulously you know, supervised. There was absolutely no indication at all of any type of voter fraud. And for Horace Greeley to say that was something. Uh, so George established his newspaper called The Standard. And although he said it was to promote his ideas and the, and the, 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 the cause of labor in the United States, uh, it actually, the first issue and virtually every subsequent issue had long articles attacking the Catholic Church, usually in the per person of Archbishop Michael Corrigan of New York City, and praising McGlynn to the skies, and attacking the Pope, and Cardinal Simeone, the apostolic, uh, he wasn't nuncio because the, I, I don't remember Simeone's official title, but he was basically the Pope's representative in the United States. Uh, they, they change the title every now and then, so you just, just say rep. <laughs> okay, Michael Davitt, whom I mentioned before as the founder and president of the Irish National Land League, started reading this newspaper and denounced it. He said, Mr. George's newspaper is the organ of the new labor movement, yet it chiefly attacks the church, which cannot be the object of the labor party. Now, if you want somebody to go to bat for labor, you want Michael Davitt, because as a factory boy, he lost his arm. He was not going to put up with unjust conditions or British government injustice or any other form of injustice. If he said that you were doing something wrong, you can pretty much count on it. Well, that ticked off Henry George, of course. And so he went to work trying to separate Davitt from Parnell and O'Brien, which meant sucking up to O'Brien and Parnell. Well, Parnell, of course, would have none of it. Uh, Parnell was kind of, well, we better not get on to him. <laughs> it's too easy for me to start lecturing on Parnell, too. Uh, sort of a, sort of one of my hero anti-heroes. I mean, very equivocal person. Uh, anyway, let's see. Uh, I lost my place on my notes here. <laughs> Time for break for commercial. Okay. 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 I found my place again. Uh, now, during all this back and forth, while with uh, George insulting the, the bishop and the church and McGlynn doing the same, McGlynn was ordered to Rome, not just once, but several times. He had during, you know, McCluskey's tenure, he had also been, you know, summoned to Rome and managed to avoid it each time. I tried to count up the number of times he had been summoned to, to Rome to answer for his actions, and I lost count. I mean, he always managed to weasel out of it one way or another. Uh, he was, however, removed from his parish because he insisted upon making speeches, and that's another whole story. You wouldn't believe some of the stuff that was going on in his parish that he was at the center of. Uh, George, of course, interfered, claiming that McGlynn's rights as an American had been violated because he was being disciplined as breaking church law. I thought, well, now wait a minute. How is it your civil right to work for an employer and betray that employer's interests? If you work for Coca-Cola and you start selling Pepsi or telling people how great Pepsi is than Coke or work for Pepsi and telling them to drink Coke, are your rights as an American being violated in any way, shape, or form? No, you're violating the rights of your employer. So McGlynn preaching anti-Catholicism as a Catholic priest was in no way... <laughs> okay. Yeah, you get it. Uh, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you didn't see it. I just put my hand in my face. <laughs> a double face palm. That's why he was laughing. <laughs> Okay. Now, Bishop John McQuaid of Rochester, New York, at this time, and by the way, Rochester, New York was where Fulton Sheen had his only active bishopric. Mm -hmm. uh, John McQuaid wrote to Bishop Corrigan, Archbishop Corrigan, on, you know, on this issue, uh, that the Holy Father will probably issue a dogmatic decision on the question. Uh and that was in a letter dated January 22nd, 1887, that I found in the University of Notre Dame archives with the McQuaid correspondence. And this is the first intimation of what would come to be Rerum Novarum four years later. 
it was triggered by the whole McGlynn George Corrigan conflict, in my opinion. And I think I've got a strong case for it. Uh, so that in a, in a bit, <laughs> the, the, the controversy became so heated and with McGlynn making constant accusations against Corrigan, at one point he was saying, you're supporting James G. Blaine for president. Uh, Corrigan said, no, I'm voting for Cleveland, Grover Cleveland. And McGlynn said, but you told me privately that you were voting for Blaine. And Corrigan said, I never said any such thing. Why would I? No reason to. And he was making accusations back and forth. Corrigan was a liar. Corrigan was a heretic. Uh, and Corrigan, of course, was denying it. And then finally just stopped. Uh, at one point, McGlynn gave an interview in the newspaper. A day later, he denied it. And then he did it again. A newspaper uh, reporter who reported on something McGlynn said was called a, you know, a, what, what would McGlynn accused him of something, basically of lying in the newspapers. The, the reporter threatened to sue him, showed him his notes, got witnesses. McGlynn dropped the case. Uh, McGlynn kept, you know, swearing his pledged word that he was right. Whereupon one of the newspapers, <laughs> the Lewiston, Maine Saturday Journal said, well, this ought to settle the controversy about the matter since Dr. McGlynn's word is certainly good, meaning exactly the opposite. <laughs> I mean, nobody except the fanatics of who supported George and McGlynn believed a word McGlynn said. Uh, okay, let's see. Oh, don't worry, we're on the home stretch. <laughs> okay. Now, then came the great Henry George rally of June 5th, 1887. This was the high watermark of Henry George's career. He had a huge parade. It was to celebrate the cause of labor and promote Henry George. You had brass bands, you had marchers, you had the 69th New York Regiment Association, you know, the fighting 69th Regiment marching. You had Irish American groups. You, everybody and his brother was in this. And what caused Henry George to organize it was the fact that William O'Brien of the United Irishmen, you know, one third of the leadership of the United, of the Irish National Land League, in whose support McGlynn and George had been making, you know, ostensibly been making supportive speeches saying that they should be socialist, when O'Brien said, no, we should not. Uh, was visiting New York. So without informing O'Brien that he had done so, he made O'Brien the guest of honor and the keynote speaker at the rally. McGlynn, uh, excuse me, O'Brien politely declined without making any comment on it. Well, that infuriated Henry George. And right after, you know, at, in the rally, they were making speeches against O'Brien, accusing O'Brien of everything uh, the New York Times had a field day with this one. They were reporting, I have a copy of the article, and it is hilarious because they went out of their way to make George's and McGlynn's supporters look stupid. So they carefully quoted all the dumbest things that people said, like, Henry George will sweep through the world like Vesuvius swept through the walls of Jerusalem. What? I think that they meant Vespasian when he took Jerusalem in, you know, in, in the first century. But I mean, you don't want to mess that up for the for the for your rhetoric. And at, halfway through the through the big rally condemning O'Brien, uh, they announced that a collection would be taken up after a short recess, whereupon the meeting immediately adjourned. <laughs> Okay, uh, so George managed to alienate virtually the entire Irish and Irish-American community by attacking William O'Brien. Uh, even the 69th New York Regiment Association condemned him in print. Uh, the, the Knights of Labor repudiated him. I mean, this was the single largest labor organization in the U.S., which was having its own problems, but they were not going to be associated with someone who was going to attack their membership so obviously. 
And so, uh, of course, attacked Parnell, attacked O'Brien, attacked everybody and his brother. And then 10 years later claimed that he had not done it. But we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, O'Brien said that, you know, when people interviewed him, he says, I came to New York to support the cause of Irish nationalism, not promote Henry George. And it was very, even the New York Times, who generally was not in favor of Irish nationalism, was very complimentary to him. Uh, they said, usually they would, they would be calling, you know, anybody for Irish nationalism a thug or Bruce says, O'Brien acted as a gentleman should. <laughs> Oh, gee, thanks. Okay, New York Times likes me. <laughs> wow. Uh, then uh, it was that was on June fifth, eighteen eighty-seven. On July fourth, eighteen eighty-seven, less than a month later, McGlynn was excommunicated. He had been given several warnings. I think just four in eighteen eighty-seven alone to present himself within forty days and explain himself. And it was made clear on May 5th that if he did not finally show up in Rome within 40 days, he would be excommunicated for disobedience. In other words, they weren't excommunicated. As George's legend says, he was excommunicated for being a socialist. No, he was excommunicated because he was a jerk. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Now, on July 5th, because July 4th was a holiday. I think that's still a holiday, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, registered letter could not be delivered on a national holiday. And the U.S. Postal Service then delivered it, on, attempted to make delivery of the registered letter on July 5th, 1887. A few days before, McGlynn, who claimed he could not go to Rome because he was too ill to travel anywhere, had departed for Minnesota where he gave a speech and several speeches along the way at the Opera House, attended a Knights of Labor picnic and did all kinds of things. Now, you have to realize that this was 1887. Minnesota was the Wild West. He took a far more arduous journey to Minnesota than he would have to take a steamer to Rome. Mm -hmm. But he didn't go to Rome because he was far too ill to travel as his doctor insisted he was. Now, then he returned from you know, Minnesota a few days later, and claimed that because he had not received the registered letter in person, he was not excommunicated. Okay. And he kept insisting that he was not excommunicated. Corrigan insisted that he was. But um, McGlynn, you wonder why I don't even like the name anymore. <laughs> Any, I, My apologies to anybody with the name McGlynn. Uh, <laughs> Finally, on the 15th day, the last day that you could go and pick up a letter before it was returned to the, a registered letter before it was returned to the sender, he strolled around to the Brooklyn post office and picked it up. Finally, he had, he had continued celebrating mass in the, in the interim because he insisted he was not excommunicated and therefore could still do so. Finally, when he picked up the letter, he considered himself officially excommunicated. And then he published uh, a, uh, an article in the North American Review, which he had clearly prepared well in advance, you know, basically detailing his grievances against the Catholic Church. One, they made him wear the Roman collar. This was an infringement of his rights as an American. Uh, there were a few other, I'm not making this up. <laughs> It's in the, I have the article. Uh, the big one, it, it, but there were other, you know, other issues. But the big one was that in the council, the, the Baltimore Council, they had decreed that any parish that could afford to do so should open a Catholic school. Well, McGlynn said that this meant that anybody who didn't open a Catholic school would be excommunicated and that whether or not you could afford it, you were forced to open a Catholic school. But if you look at the decrees of the council itself, it says, if you can afford it. Mm -hmm. There was no absolute mandate that said whether or not you can or cannot. And of course, 
Refusing to open a Catholic school is not grounds for excommunication. That's an administrative matter. But of course, that didn't make good press. Uh, if there was one thing McGlynn hated more than the church hierarchy and the teachings on private property, it was the Catholic school system. The American public school system should be good enough for any Catholic. Who needs all you know Catholic education when you have the American public school system, the greatest school system on earth that will teach you to be a good American? Well, all the Protestant private schools and all the Jewish private schools and all the other private schools disagreed. But that he never gave up that. I mean, even after he was, he recanted and was back in the Catholic Church in presumably good standing, he still continued his campaign against, against Catholic schools. Uh, now, so he, was, he had been excommunicated, and he kept insisting that Henry George was the prophet of the new gospel, destined by heaven to create a perfect society on earth, and that's an almost exact quote from his article in the North American Review in 1887. Uh, unfortunately, since McGlynn had ticked off the Irish, and McGlynn had ticked off the, uh, the church, and had been excommunicated, they were no longer news. I mean, a, a Catholic priest in the church complaining that he's being unjustly treated by the church is news. An excommunicated Catholic priest who is complaining that he's being mistreated by the church is not news. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, non fama entra extra ecclesiam. You know? <laughs> For you non-Latinists or those who can't understand my extremely minimal Latin, that means there's no fame outside the Catholic Church. Uh, now, in spite of that, there were continuing efforts made to get to get McGlynn to meet, you know, the demands of the Church and lift the excommunication, and frankly. There were only two conditions, and they were rather reasonable. One, go to Rome to explain his views on you know, the single tax and land ownership. Not repudiate them, just explain them. It was made clear throughout this entire process, you can keep any views you want. You can believe anything you want. But as a Catholic priest, you will teach and preach on what the Catholic Church teaches, not what you believe. Of course, it would be ideal if a Catholic priest actually believed what he's teaching, but uh, administratively you can't, you know, tell what's in someone's heart, but you can control what he says from the pulpit and on a podium. Oh, this is another one. McGlynn claimed that even though he had appeared on political platforms constantly, that he had never appeared on a, on a platform, on a political platform of any kind. Of course, he said this from a political platform. Uh, uh, the other condition was apologize to Archbishop Corrigan, Cardinal Simeone, Leo XIII, and anybody else he had insulted, which was a rather a lengthy list, by the way. <laughs> okay, now, jumping ahead a little bit, after Rerum Novarum was issued, a third condition was added, which was accept Rerum Novarum without reservation. Now, if you ask me, these are extremely reasonable conditions for lifting of excommunication. McGlynn would have none of it. He kept making speeches whenever he could get anybody to print what he said, saying that they were begging him to come back. They were trying to bribe him to come back, but he would not do it. I said, there were no bribes involved. <laughs> they just wanted him to shut up. It was a scandal that here was this moron running around preaching socialism, even though fewer and fewer people were paying attention to him, when all he had to do was apologize and visit Rome. That was it. Uh, now, Archbishop Corrigan, and I can understand his viewpoint, he insisted that McGlynn should be required to recant his socialist views in order to have the ban of excommunication lifted. Vatican authorities carefully explained to Corrigan, it might be a good idea, but we can't require it. He was excommunicated for disobedience. The moment he obeys, 
he will, we have to lift the excommunication. That's it. We can't add extra conditions. Nevertheless, to this day, Georgists insist that McGlynn was excommunicated for his socialist views and the fact that the ban was lifted without requiring him to recant his socialism means that the Catholic Church changed its teachings on socialism. I mean, welcome to modern academia. <laughs> okay, I just made it made it absolutely certain I will never get a job in academia right there. <laughs> Not that I had a chance anyway. Uh, now, but basically, you can't excommunicate someone for one reason and give another reason for his reinstatement. Uh, give George's stock sank so low at this point that in 1888, there was a move to put his book, Progress and Poverty, on the Index of Prohibited Books, you know, the books you're not supposed to read, and Cardinal Gibbons said, no. This is another thing that the Georges take and says, see, Gibbons prevented progress and poverty from being placed on the index, therefore he endorsed it. That's not why Cardinal Gibbons wouldn't put it on the index. Progress and Poverty had been prohibited reading at a number of colleges and universities, which instantly made it the most popular book on campus. Yeah. And so, all he, if it had been put on the index, that would have meant that every Catholic who could get a copy would start reading it, just to be able to say, oh, I got to read it. I know a lot of people who, who read Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code simply because people in the church condemned it. I tried to read it once. Uh, it is boring. <laughs> and I understand that uh, Tom Hanks still hasn't lived down the movie. <laughs> uh, anyway, when he was asked why he wouldn't put it on the index, Cardinal Gibbons replied, he said, it is therefore prudent to let such absurdities die a natural death and not incur the risk of giving them a, an artificial importance by the intervention of church tribunals. In other words, I don't consider that an endorsement. Okay, now, George and McGlynn kept insisting that Leo XIII, and they named the Pope, didn't understand Catholic social teaching or America. I mean, how many times have you heard, oh, the Pope just doesn't understand Americans? Well, that was first uh, said against Leo XIII. They, they were calling Leo XIII crazy. He was a tool of the Jesuits. He didn't understand Catholicism. I thought, yeah, right. And I'm sure you do. Uh, anyway, uh, the indications are that Leo XIII not only greatly admired America, he understood it very well. Uh, this is interesting. When Leo XIII's 10-year jubilee as Pope came up, Grover Cleveland President of the United States, first name Stephen, by the way, you can take a bow. Uh, although, of course, you'd have to start answering the question, Ma, Ma, where's my pa sitting in the White House? Ha, ha, ha. Or James G. Blaine, the Continental Lighter from the state of Maine. I mean, clean political campaigns are have never been exactly a characteristic of American politics, or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, Anyway, when Grover Cleveland, as a person, as, as a private individual, he could not do this as president of the United States, of course, but he consulted with Cardinal Gibbons on what would be an appropriate gift for Leo XIII. Now, probably most of Congress wouldn't have protested, but it was a very touchy thing to do, but he did it anyway. And after long consultation, came up with what they considered the perfect gift for Leo XIII, a specially inscribed copy of the United States Constitution. And Leo XIII thought that this was one of the best gifts he had gotten. He put it in his private apartments and showed it to specially privileged visitors. Uh, Pius IX was probably the first pope to praise the United States Constitution. But Leo XIII thought very highly of the United States and of its Constitution as originally intended, not what it has been transformed into by another speech, what the Supreme Court did, and, few, <laughs> and a few other things. But, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> we're almost finished. Uh, so, basically, what you had was 
you know, the powers of socialism growing, the new things spreading everywhere. And so finally, in 1891, after what seems to be about four years of preparation, he issued the encyclical Rerum Novarum. It was, this was May 15th, 1891. And that is where we can stop and then pick up for our next one, because that story is almost as interesting or even more interesting than what we just covered today. <laughs> After you've had a chance to absorb the nuttiness from 1878 to 1891, then we got into the super nuttiness from 1891 to 1903. <laughs> this is nuttiness the prequel then. Is that what we we're going to call this? <laughs> well, trust me, everything building up to the nuttiness of today, uh, <laughs> that's a polite way of putting it. <laughs> Well, Michael, we look forward to that. Appreciate it as always. Okay. It's, this, this is actually great because I get to talk about anything I want to as long as I stay within the general bounds. Yeah, yeah we, we extend those bounds pretty far, but yes. <laughs> well, you know, if, if you don't, you won't get the full story because right. I've, I've noticed that a lot of the problems people you know have with Catholic social teaching or even you know the, the purely religious doctrines come because they don't understand the environment or the situation in which they were promulgated. Yeah. People think, they look at Rerum Novarum, for instance, and say, oh, new things. Why, what an innovative way to put that. He was just copying what Gregory Sixteenth said almost over half a century before. Yeah, context if is you important. Look at what was going on, well, see, and I have heard it said that, well, Leo Thirteenth issued Rerum Novarum against only Marxist communism. Well, and George's socialism, of course, is okay. Well, no, if, as we've just learned, it was issued very likely primarily due to the trigger provided by Henry George and his promoting socialism as authentic Catholics teaching. So what you're trying to say is context is important. Oh, very important. <laughs> well, We'll get to it in a week or two away, but yes, we'll get to it, folks. But uh, Michael, thank you. Oh, well, thank you.